Hey friends, today on the podcast, we're letting you in on an exclusive conversation Scott did for Seminary Now subscribers. It's a little bit longer than our usual episodes, but I think you'll find it very insightful. Now you may be asking, what is this Seminary Now? Well, Seminary Now is the latest resource produced by Northern Seminary. It's a new subscription-based streaming video platform offering on-demand video courses from today's leading professors, ministry practitioners, and authors. Teachers include our very own Scott McKnight, Ninja Gupta, and others like Roger Olson, Ruth Haley Barton, Brenda Salter McNeil, Greg Boyd, Michael Bird, and many more. We want to bring you this conversation to give you a glimpse of what Seminary Now is all about. Since you're a Kingdom Roots listener, we also want to give you a special offer. You can visit seminarynow.com for a preview of the course offerings and save 15% with your subscription by using the coupon code TAKE15. That's in all capitals, T-A-K-E-15. Just go to seminarynow.com to check it out. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have Scott's key observations from 30 plus years of studying Jesus. Hello, everyone. I want to welcome you to the first Seminary Now live event. Seminary Now, as you know, is a new streaming video platform delivering exclusive theological and ministry courses for, from a diverse group of leading educators and thought leaders. These live events are opportunities for you, our subscribers, to interact with our teachers. My name is Jason Guile. I'm the executive director of Seminary Now, and it's a pleasure to connect with you this way and give you an opportunity to interact uh, with our leading teachers, including our first teacher, Scott McKnight, who's joining us today. I want to jump right into this and introduce Scott. Scott is the professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. He's one of the foremost New Testament scholars in the world, a prolific author, speaker, having written over, or written or edited over 75 books. Scott, welcome. Jason, good to be with you, and I'm excited, uh, as you are, uh, to catch the vision that you gave us at Northern about Seminary Now. Uh, I remember when you brought us into the room and sold, uh, presented this idea to us, and I thought, oh, boy, what's going to happen with this? And and as it's real, it's taken shape, Jason, it's, it's really good because this is designed for churches. This is seminary coming to churches mm-hmm in an um, accessible format, reasonable length of time, people can learn from us and we can learn from them. But I'm, I'm really impressed with the, with the lineup that you've designed for us. So I'm excited about seminary now, and this, this will be a fun evening, I think, to talk about Jesus and the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah, Scott, you've been teaching Jesus and the Gospels for decades now, and so that is somewhat condensed in your Seminary Now course, and this is an opportunity for our subscribers this evening to uh, ask questions. Uh, before we go to your questions, uh, I'm going to get us kicked off with a, a starter question, if you will, to set the stage for Scott. Um, that I want to focus on the developments in gospel studies, particularly over the last three or four decades, that inform the church's theology and mission its understanding of Jesus, uh, as well as uh, the mission of the church itself. Uh, Scott, 
your work has been both very theological as well as, well as very historical. And so I want to press into that for a moment and just hear from you how you see those two things relating. In other words, um, why is it important that our theological study of the New Testament is at the same time very historical? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, th there's, a, there's an old uh, line that everybody repeats in beginning Bible study that even though it's repeated by everybody and it's cute, it is still as true now as it has ever been. And that is a text without a context is a pretext. Jesus was a Jew. I remember one time being on a television station and I had just, I was being interviewed about the Jesus Creed book that I wrote. And the person who interviewed me said, this was the first time I ever realized Jesus was a Jew. Hmm. I mean, it's amazing. I think, what Bible are they reading? So I have, I have focused, I have theological interests. Some people just have pure historical interests. But I'm interested in Jesus in his world and the theological significance of what we discover about Jesus in his world. I'm interested the same with Paul, uh, James, Peter. I've done a little bit of work on Peter. These things, uh, each one of these authors emerges from a context, and it is disrespectful to anyone's theology, anyone's statements, I mean, significant statements, uh, to ignore their context. So I'm a white American in the first century, I mean, in the 21st century, and I speak from that world. And I'm not ashamed of that. That's just, that's the, I'm locked into those categories. So theology is never simply trans-historical or ahistorical or non-historical or normative for all time or timeless. All theology is timely. The best theology is very timely. And sometimes the best theology is timely only for a time. And sometimes the best theology is timely in a way that becomes timeless. So I'm... Uh, I, I think we have to we have to study these texts in their context, and that's what we focus on in my uh, programs at Northern Seminary. Hmm. What are the dangers if we don't do that? In other words, if we take a go it alone approach, um, if we read with our intuitions, if you will, uh, I suppose another side of that would be that perhaps we read the Bible so exclusively through the lens of a, of a certain theological framework that's, of course, uh, from, from more recent times. Um, what are some of the dangers or examples that you see of, of people misreading the Bible that way? Um, I'll give two examples, Jason. I hear a lot of people, and I'll talk about this in a few minutes, who talk about kingdom of God. Uh, I'll, I'll skip that. I'll bring, I, they talk about justification. And the language that they use about justification is unquestionably drawn from Martin Luther and John Calvin in the 16th century. And while they brought fresh insights in very, very timely, but not timeless articulations of theology, 
although some people would like both of them to be timeless. I have a Lutheran church across the street from my house. Um, but, but they've imposed upon first century some categories. And we now know that justification or rightness or righteousness or justice is connected to a Jewish world that without that context, we are probably and almost certainly imposing on it. All right, a second one. Uh, I'm a, I love to read Douglas Campbell. I think he's one of the most challenging thinkers on the Apostle Paul today. Douglas Campbell reads Paul through Karl Barth because he believes Karl Barth was the greatest interpreter of the Apostle Paul. Well, I read Douglas Campbell at times. I think that's just too Barthian. That's too much Barth. And, I, and that's what, uh, this is the sort of thing that I think we see all the time, that we as biblical uh, professors, biblical scholars, we want to challenge the unquestioned assumptions that some kind of statement about the Bible is accurate when we study the New Testament or the Old Testament and we say, no, <clears throat> that sounds like the 21st century or the 20th century or the 16th century, but it doesn't sound like first century Judaism. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's sort of the, the danger is to impose on the text. When we impose on the voice of another person, we are no longer listening or respecting their voice. Mm -hmm. So we have to listen carefully in order not to impose. Uh, well, let's let's move our topic to two examples within gospel and Jesus studies. Um, and while we go there, I want to remind our viewers as well that they can go ahead and put uh, questions in, in the chat box. And we'll get to some of those in just a moment, as well as to some of the ones that may have been submitted uh, by email beforehand. Um, so going back to our earlier conversation about the importance of uh, studying the Bible's theology with a historical framework, uh, two examples come to mind uh, for our topic this evening. Uh, one is uh, the meaning of the, the gospel. And secondly, uh, the meaning of kingdom. And, and those are two things, uh, as you know, that uh, over time, um, those two ideas have kind of uh, grown and taken on a life of their own in terms of how Christians have understood them over uh, millennia. Um, so what are the ways in which your kind of study, uh, modern historical study of the New Testament, but your work in particular have informed in those two areas, maybe starting with the uh, meaning of gospel. Actually, in some ways, these two things that I mentioned are uh, maybe not one and the same, but highly interrelated. So do um, you want to take a stab at that? Well, you know, I, you know, I like to talk about the gospel, but uh, to talk about the gospel and the kingdom is a lot of, is a lot of substance to try to bring up. But <laughs> Um, I, I'll give a, a, a short summary about gospel and then develop uh, at length uh, kingdom stuff, if that's all right with you, Jason. Sure. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, gospel is understood by most people how we get saved. It's the message of how to get saved. And in the United States, and we are very good at importing through missionary activity, through TV, through publications, through our massive globalization context, um, uh, we are um, very good at importing the way we understand things. Uh, 
And the way we understand the gospel is rooted in Billy Graham um, and what is called the four spiritual laws. Or a, another version of it today is the uh, bridge illustration. Essentially, it is to say that God loves us, the four spiritual laws now, and God has a wonderful plan for our life. We have been created by God and made in his image. Well, that's usually not defined. And and that make, and because it's not defined, that makes a big difference. Um, but we have sinned. And so th this becomes the fundamental category. Humans made in God's image, but they sinned. And because we've sinned, we are now out of relationship with God. And we are destined for separation from God. And depending on how strong the preacher is, this can get into the hellfire and damnation, or it can just get a little bit scary, but comforting um, at the same time. But because God loved us and created us and doesn't want us to be eternally separated from him, God sent his son, Jesus, and he died on the cross and he shouldered our sinfulness and the punishment of our sins so that if we receive him and what God has done for us in Christ, we can be forgiven of that sinfulness and sin and be reconciled to God with the promise and the hope that when we die, we will go to heaven. That's how most people understand the gospel. And I don't think I'd want to go around saying that the, that what, what that stated is um, wrong, but it is not what the New Testament says the gospel is. And I've repeated this for almost 10 years now. The gospel is framed and formed by looking at texts in the New Testament that actually tell us what the gospel is. And I use 2 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 15. Those are explicit statements of what the gospel is. And then we have sermons in the book of Acts where we have Peter and then Paul preaching the gospel, explicitly stated so. And then we have the gospels themselves. And when we put these together, there is a, an amazing harmony, essentially stated in dogmatic propositional form in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus lived. He died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised according to the scriptures. He died according to the scriptures. And he was ascended. And then he's going to come back. And then uh, there will be a conquering of everything. And Jesus will hand over, the Son will hand over the kingdom of this world to the Father, and God will be all in all. Hmm. So the that's the gospel according to Paul. And Paul says that's the gospel according to the tradition that I inherited. And that's 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2. Therefore, the gospel fundamentally is the story about Jesus. It is to tell the story of Jesus in a way that is formed by the story of Israel of the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, however you want to describe it. Mm -hmm. And when we know that story, Jesus makes sense. And when we know Jesus, he makes sense of that story. 
so we can learn to read the Bible backwards and we can then learn to read it better in a forwards manner. Hmm. That's the gospel. It is to tell the story of Jesus. And this makes a difference. It's not that he doesn't save because the gospel that tells the story of Jesus tells the story that he died for our sins. So therefore, the benefit of redemption, deliverance, salvation, justification, reconciliation, propitiation, however you want to define expiation, these terms, every one of those things is because Jesus died and was raised for us. He launches new creation. Hmm. He is preaching the kingdom of God. So kingdom and the gospel are connected. So the gospel, uh, I think that we need we need a greater attention to the New Testament texts themselves. And Matthew Bates, a young scholar at Quincy University in Quincy, Illinois, and I are kind of uh, on a mission to try to help pastors preach the gospel and teach what the gospel is and not be afraid of teaching what the New Testament says the gospel is. And it is not that other people are wrong. It's that other people are not preaching the gospel as it is articulated in the New Testament, and therefore they're missing things. And some of you probably have seen some of these public conversations that Matthew and I have had online uh, with people in the Gospel Coalition and leaders who are in those circles. And, you know, by and large, it's okay. But... Um, Matthew and I are not going to back down because we think this is what the New Testament says. And uh, we we have the courage of our convictions to preach that gospel and to teach that gospel. Would you say, uh, acknowledging the importance of, of how one is saved, uh, would you say that if the gospel, the way the biblical writers use it, is not that per se, that it's the announcement of a king and a kingdom? and all that that particularly means in light of the person of Jesus, um, story of Israel included, life, death, resurrection, etc. But But the kingdom piece of it, the announcement of the kingdom? Well, yes, it is to announce Jesus. It is to tell the world that God has sent Jesus and that he is the world's true Lord. I think Lord is used more commonly when Paul is in the diaspora outside of Jerusalem. And Messiah, Christ, Christos, etc. He uses more of that term, King, when he's in a Jewish context. But it's it's not simplistic. But yes, it is to announce that Jesus is the Lord. Romans chapter ten. If you believe in your heart that you know that He's the Lord, and you know that He's that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It is to, it is to believe something about Jesus. Um, that saves, so it saves, but it is not simply how to get saved. Mm -hmm. I think that the, the big mistake here is, is that we turn Jesus from being the subject of the gospel, the content of the gospel, into Jesus being the means of our salvation. Mm -hmm. So then it becomes about us. It becomes fundamentally narcissistic and selfish to turn the gospel into what it does for me 
rather than who Jesus is. Who he is leads to what he does for me. But when we focus on who he is, you know, I liked, I liked John Piper's statement that God is the gospel. Now, I would like for it to say God revealing himself in Christ. And I'm sure John Piper would agree with that. But that is right. That's the content of the gospel. It saves because the God, the Jesus that we are preaching, are they, they are saviors. Well, um, you might have just actually partly answered a question that, we, that I have from a participant here. Uh, the question is, what are some examples of what people are missing when they don't understand the gospel as presented in the New Testament? And maybe what you just said about making it about yourself is one example of that. Any other examples come to mind? Of well, I mean, there's it, it, it manifests itself in, in a variety of ways. But for instance, if you have a conversation with someone about Jesus, you are evangelizing them. Now, many evangelists would say you are not evangelizing them if you do not present the plan of salvation. No, I, I disagree with that. Did, how many times did Jesus present the plan of salvation? You know, really? I think the answer is that's very few. He didn't talk about it that way. He talked about himself. He's profoundly egocentric in a right sort of way. He drew attention to himself as the agent of God in the world to bring the story of Israel to its proper fulfillment. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think the fundamental thing we miss is that we don't tell people about Jesus. Now, this is, this is an amazing story. I had numerous students when I was teaching at an undergraduate program who grew up in Christian homes and went to Christian churches their whole life and saw themselves as Christians, who when they took my course on Jesus of Nazareth, said things like this to me. I went to church my whole life and I never heard about Jesus. Now that is interesting because I know they did, but it wasn't a focus on Jesus. It was a focus on Christian ethics. It was a focus on God's love. It was a focus on, on salvation. It was a, a focus on personal faith and all those things are important. But what I've learned is that, when we talk about Jesus, we draw people into the message of salvation. And my favorite illustration of this is you cannot read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, especially if you're young, let's say 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and not fall in love with Aslan. That's evangelism. He... he tells a story about Aslan. It's a wonderful story about Peter and the Pavensi children and everything, but it's all focused on Aslan. And you love the story at the end when the stone table cracks and the Pavensi children hop on, on Aslan's back and put their face in his mane and romp through Narnia. That's evangelism. We need to show people and tell people who Jesus is, and people will be more interested in Christianity. 
when we tell them about Christianity, often they don't hear enough about Jesus. Mm -hmm. Jesus is all we've got going for us. He is the vanguard of everything the church has. Mm -hmm. And what he, what he talked about, and Jason, I know we, we need to get to this topic, what he talked about, his favorite pet theme, as it were, was kingdom of God. And I, um, I'd like to say a little bit about how this message has uh, grown in my life. I grew up in a church. Uh, I like to say sometimes that I grew up outside the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom when I grew up was in, in a Baptist church. It was heaven. It maybe was the millennium. We heard a lot about the millennium. Um, but it was something in the future. And I just, we didn't talk about the kingdom. We talked about justification and salvation and getting saved and revivals and things like that. And all those things were good things. But we didn't talk about the kingdom. The first time I heard anybody meaningfully use the word kingdom on a regular basis was 1973. I was in Austria outside Vienna in a village called a city named Wiener Neustadt. And I was with a missionary from Southern Illinois named Bruce. And Bruce was a free, free Methodist. And he talked about kingdom a lot. And he, in his prayers, he talked about kingdom. And I kind of just, it was a, it was a source of curiosity to me. I thought, I don't, I didn't grow up in, I don't know what he's talking about. I mean, we don't talk about kingdom. And, you know, is he pre-trib or post-trib was the sort of questions that, that were curious to me. Yeah. But then when I went to seminary, um, I had a professor named Walter Liefeld who talked about kingdom. And so that's when it began to seal. But, but when I was a college junior, George Ladd's New Testament, maybe it was a senior, George Ladd's New Testament theology came out. And I was at Erdman's the day the books arrived from the printer. And I got a copy for $2.95. And I began to read it. And he was drunk, intoxicated on kingdom. I learned through George Ladd about a man named Herman Ritterboss. And I heard Herman Ritterboss give a lecture when I was in college in Grand Rapids. And I learned later more that the reform talk about kingdom a whole lot more than my Baptist world talked about kingdom. And it was connected to covenant and they had a pretty broad understanding of kingdom, but uh, it was natural language in their theology. And um, I, I began to think about the kingdom of God a lot more as I studied the gospels in seminary. And, um, and I've seen some huge impacts in my lifetime, in my life of evangelicalism. And I'm, I have a, an uneasy relationship to evangelicalism because I think it is complete, because of the media, it has been defined and captured in ways that I'm not too happy about. But I saw evangelicalism shift from what I'll call Paul centrism to Jesus centrism. As I said, I grew up and I went, I went, I grew up in a church 
and I went to college for four years at a Christian college, almost no language about the kingdom of God. It was all about justification, salvation. You know, it was typical Christian systematic theology of an evangelical fundamentalist sort. And all of a sudden I began myself through Walter Liefeld at my seminary, I began to study the gospels and I saw this kingdom language. I don't think I had a good definition. I was simply using George Ladd's understanding of the dynamic rule of God in Christ in the world that unleashed redemption. And, and I saw then a move among evangelicals from just studying Romans and Ephesians and Galatians. Some people, odd ones, studied the book of Hebrews. I saw a movement, and it was in part shaped by professors at Trinity, Grant Osborne and Walt Liefeld, of, of more and more studying the Synoptic Gospels. Mm -hmm. uh, D.A. Carson came in a little bit later, and he emphasized the Gospel of John. So I saw a shift. All of a sudden, gospel studies became more and more important. Mm -hmm. Then along came historical Jesus studies that you asked me about earlier. And those studies uh, became influential in a lot, uh, in many pockets of Christian evangelicalism. It, is a, it would be a shock for many of our students, Jason, to be plopped down in a church in the 1950s and 60s in the United States because the language used for the Christian faith would not be their language. It was justification language. It was the theory of redemption as that came to us through Luther, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, and then uh, Jonathan Edwards a little bit, John Wesley some for some, but through then Billy Graham and, and that sort of gospel language. Uh, but all of a sudden, uh, we now have more and more students who are interested in the in the gospels and in Jesus studies, and this these are this is where I see the impact. Today, people talk about discipleship. You have to have a discipleship program. That did not happen until the 80s and 90s. People weren't, didn't have discipleship programs. They had Christian life programs. Go back to Campus Crusade, university material of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and you won't discover discipleship language. You'll discover Christian life language. All of a sudden, people are talking about the kingdom. All of a sudden, people are talking about Jesus. I, I started moving into language about the kingdom of God, and I wanted at the same time to keep the message of Jesus about the kingdom of God connected as well to the message of Paul about, let's say, justification, ecclesiology, and what he was doing. So um, one of the things I think is happening that I'm excited about is systematic theology is changing. Systematic theology is changing in a way that gives much greater latitude for kingdom language and the categories of Jesus to shape the topics of theology. If you pick up a typical systematic theology, it's God, man, Christ, sin, salvation, ecclesiology, eschatology, maybe some ethics. Um, but that language, those categories come out of the Pauline framework. What's going to happen when we start letting kingdom of God shape what our theology looks like 
and the, the topics that we use. That, I think, is an exciting dimension of what's going on in systematic theology. So, um, and Jason, I've, I've written books on both of these topics. I have a book called The King Jesus Gospel, and I have a book called Kingdom Conspiracy, where I develop the five elements of the kingdom of God. So I think that's what you asked me to talk about. I don't know if I, I've covered all the topics you want. Absolutely. Um, we do have some um, questions from our participants and actually more perhaps than we can even have time to get to. Uh, but I'll pick a few of these here and maybe we'll have to, you'll have to give us your uh, immediate thoughts on them. Um, one is this, uh, can you give some examples of evangelism that someone could do with a close friend or coworker? For example, would you invite uh, to community or private conversation or open up with Matthew or John? I think the fundamental question that we ask in evangelism is not James, Do uh, James Kennedy's question. If you, were, uh, if you died tonight and you stood before the gates of heaven and Peter answered the door, uh, why would you, what would you say to him if he said, why should I let you in? Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the question. You know, it might get some people's attention and it probably gets 1950s people who grew up in a Christian culture of the United States uh, more interested. But the fundamental question is, who is Jesus? I believe the fundamental strategy of evangelism today is to try to generate conversations about Jesus. And here's what I have found in coffee shops, in airports, on airplanes, which can be sometimes pretty uncomfortable. Um, I find that people are interested in talking about Jesus. I've, I've told this story in other contexts, but I don't know if it's with these people or not, so I'll use it. I'm flying on an airplane to San Francisco. The guy next to me is obviously a highfalutin mathematician. He pulls out his laptop and he has a math problem on the screen that seems to go on and on and on. I mean, it was impressive. And I'm just kind of sitting back on my chair, you know, so that I could look over my, my right shoulder and see what he's doing. And his girlfriend is next to him. And she's working on a math problem. And they got to talking. And then he, he, he looks at me and he says, um, what do you do? <laughs> and I said, I'm, I'm a professor. He said, what do you teach? I said, I teach Jesus. He said, I'm Jewish. He says, but I went to a Catholic high school. He said, because my parents wanted me to get a better education at public schools. And he said, I love the parables of Jesus. And for 30 minutes, we talked about the parables of Jesus. And he was completely open and vulnerable with me about what he believed about him. And that he, he just thought Jesus was a genius with the way he talked about this stuff. And I thought, this, this is an illustration of the very point that we need to begin to emphasize, is to generate conversations about Jesus. You know, um, something comes up about the church or something comes up and, and we can say, you know, that's not what Jesus wants for the church. What do you think Jesus would want for the church? 
And people will tell you what they think. They could be totally wrong, but they're not afraid to tell you about Jesus. But if you ask them if they're going to heaven, they say, uh, where's the nearest door? How do I get out of here? It's They're not comfortable with that anymore. Um, ask, you know, or uh, you can bring up Jesus in various ways. I've learned to, it's pretty common, you know, that I can have a conversation about Jesus with people. And I find that people are not only open to it, but they begin to think about who he is. And when the question becomes, who do you think Jesus is? The question inevitably also can only be answered with this. What does that mean for me? If I, if someone says, you know, I think he was just a great teacher. And I, then I think you'd say, what did he teach that you think you should follow? Mm -hmm. uh, they obviously don't want to go in the language. They don't think he was God or something like that. They've heard that something in the church. Or if they say, you know, I think he was, uh, I think he was a rabbi. Well, what do you think a rabbi, what does that tell us about Jesus? Those questions right there. Then do you think you should listen to that kind of rabbi? Do you think the world needs more rabbis like that? And, and I find that those questions are disarming and people, as long as we don't get too pushy and negative and uh, start threatening people with things we shouldn't be doing, I think that uh, it, it works. I've, I, uh, I found students, I taught for 17 years, Jesus of Nazareth on most Tuesday and Thursday mornings, two semesters a year. Sometimes 60 students, sometimes 90 students. And at the end of a typical year, 10 to 20 of those students would say that they sort of gave their life to Jesus. They're now following Jesus. Um, I don't know how many of them would say they had a salvation experience, although I did, I did have a, um, a young woman say to me one day that when I read about Jesus and when I read the Bible, my heart is warmed. I said, if you just add that word strangely, you'll be John Wesley. But it was it was a, a, a palpable existential experience for her to encounter God by reading the Gospels themselves. So I think we, I think we need to emphasize the Gospels, tell people about Jesus. Yeah. Um, you're kind of right near to this next question already, but I'm going to ask it. Philip asks, can you talk about becoming a Christian? What is the role of a, a point-in-time experience of repentance versus a growing in faith or belief over time? The, the way I would answer, the way I've answered this question over the years is we, we sort of have a model that people have uh, date it or do it. If you can't date it, you need to do it. And the model that we've used in the church is the model of the Apostle Paul, who had a visionary experience of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Some people will know the story of Martin Luther, who uh, you know, got caught in a rainstorm. Some would tell the story of John Wesley and his, uh, the name of the street is not coming to mind right now, Aldersgate uh, Street uh, and his experience or uh, the story of some other people who can who can date it. But think about this. When was Peter converted? You know, was Peter converted when uh, in John chapter 1, 
when with his brother they think they've found the Messiah, and Jesus says, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna change your name, dude." Mm-hmm. Um, was he was he saved when he's fishing in Galilee, on the Sea of Galilee, and he catches all these fish, and he comes up on the shore and he says, "You know, get away from me, I'm a sinner." For some people, that's when he was converted. Was he converted when Jesus said, who do you think I am? And he said, I think you're the Messiah. Was he converted in John chapter 21 when after he had denied Jesus, he three times affirmed his love for Jesus? Was he converted in Acts chapter 2 when he received the Holy Spirit? Here's here's what I've learned over time in studying conversion experiences. Is that I think we have to create space for people to hear about Jesus and what he says and what he's done and to respond to what they've heard and seen in Jesus. And for some people, it will be a sudden shocking experience that stuns their life from one way of life to another. One of my favorite students I've ever had used to refer to his BC days and his AC days before Christ and after Christ, and he could date him. And it was a big part of his life. But I met, I met, I've met many, many people who do not know when they were converted. So the question for me is not, have you repented? But uh, in, in other words, can you date the day you repented? But do you repent when you sin? And have you repented from your sins? And do you believe in Jesus? I remember as a college student, I was struggling with my faith. And my college professor said to me, forget worrying about whether you had an experience that saved you. Do you believe in Jesus right now? I said, I do. He said, don't worry about it then. Go on and carry on with your life. And it was a, it was a tremendously relieving experience for me. Mm-hmm. So I believe we have, to, uh, we have to defocus on a single event. For some people, there will be one. And we can tell those stories. But we also need to tell the stories of Peter and uh, John Calvin. When was he converted? Mm -hmm. Nobody knows. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's all kinds of people like that. Uh, I don't know enough. I don't think there's a story of Jonathan Edwards praying to receive Christ. Uh, So, you know, when were these people converted? They, They were converted. Some of them are converted over time, the way shadows creep across our backyard in the evening. Uh, all of a sudden you're in the shadows and before you were in the sun, but you realize that you're in the shadows and didn't realize that you had been there for 30 minutes already. That's, that's a pretty common experience. I say, lead them to Jesus, talk about Jesus, ask him who he is. Do you believe the one that you think he is? Uh, We have time for one or two more questions. Um, I'm sensing a pattern where it seems, Scott, like you're, you're actually kind of getting to the next question ahead of me. Um, so when you got personal for just a moment ago, you kind of anticipating this next question. Um, so this is a, a personal question, but I, I hope you'll be willing to respond. Jenny asks, Dr. McKnight, why do you follow Jesus? Well, um, As a college student, I took a course on the Gospel of John, and I found Jesus amazing. 
And there's so much about him. All those seven I am sayings and the seven signs, I just found those so inviting to who he was. And then when I took a, a course in seminary with Walter Liefeld, I learned about kingdom and Jesus in his Jewish world. And I have, I have continued to study the Gospels and read the Gospels and listen to the message of Jesus for all these years. And uh, if I had to pick my favorite ones, I would say because he shows an unconditional grace and love of God for me, that he welcomes me to the table, even though I'm undeserving of sitting at that table, that he ignites my imagination with his parables, that he stimulates me to, to believe in love, to believe in peace, to believe in following the way of the cross, to spend time with him, because he, he speaks with us and continues to speak to us and with us through the pages of the gospel. And I have found that uh, the people who follow Jesus are the people I like the most. Mm -hmm. Those who follow him most deeply are the ones I, I trust most deeply. Mm -hmm. hmm. Good. Well, we have time for maybe one more question. Um, the question is, uh, Dr. McKnight from Jenny, what is the mission of the church according to Jesus? And what does that look like today? Um, if I could sneak in also a, a kind of a sub question within that, um, if you could also make reference to the resurrection here at the ending of your seminary now course, the last uh, segment is about the resurrection and the course ends with uh, the importance of the resurrection uh, to ignite this early Christian movement. Um, so I'm wondering if you can kind of include that in, in this, in this um, answer as well. But again, the, the core of the question is, what is the mission of the church according to Jesus, and what does that look like today? Okay. The core of the mission is to participate, to enter and participate in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is that we have a king who is Jesus. God in Jesus is our king and that he redeems us and that he governs us and that he calls us together as a people and he gives us his teachings, the law, and he creates an embodied reality. The land promise becomes a worldwide embodied church promise, I, I believe. Okay. So the mission, the mission is to launch through the power of the resurrection and ascension and the sending of the Spirit through the death, resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Spirit to be empowered, to be people of the kingdom together, embodying the kingdom, and witnessing to the kingdom in the world as an alternative to the world, to the cosmos, to the flesh, to sin, to the hectic realities of power and selfishness and narcissism and sicknesses that are so typical of society today. We're at a tough time 
in our culture. So I believe that the mission of the church is to embody and witness to the kingdom and to draw people into that kingdom and witness to the glory of God and through Christ and in the power of the spirit to that gospel itself. That's the mission of the church. Good. Good. Well, excellent. Um, we are about out of time. Uh, I think we'll move to just a few concluding remarks. Um, Scott, I want to give you an opportunity to speak about uh, anything that you're working on currently, um, either current projects or anything that's uh, recently been published. Okay, let's see. Now, I, a year ago, I published a book on the Romans called Reading Romans Backwards and Pastor Paul, and I still love those books, and I still like talking about those books, but all my speaking engagements are COVIDed out, mm -hmm. virus out. Mm -hmm. And um, I have a book coming out with my daughter in about a month. And the title of the book is A Church Called Tove. It is uh, helping churches form cultures of goodness. Tov is the Hebrew word for goodness. I think, Jason, you'll like that. Tov is a beautiful little word. Um, I was talking to a New York uh, major writer the other day, and she has been studying the word tov in rabbinic writings and found it a wonderful word. And I said, hey, it's a great word. But this, this book is an attempt to uh, describe some of the problems that have happened in American evangelical churches, Willow Creek, Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicagoland, the Southern Baptist Church, the Sovereign Grace Ministry Churches, and even the Roman Catholic Church, and to expose some of the toxicity that occurs in some of those churches and the cultures that prop those toxicities up. And so we expose a little bit of that, but our goal is to present seven categories of what we call the circle of Tov. And, uh, and that will form a culture of Tov so that in churches, Tov cultures take root and they are honest and people-oriented and compassionate. And they don't do these abusive things mm. because the culture blocks it from happening. And cultures are really important. I have a little book. Now I haven't. This isn't. I haven't said this even on my blog. I have a little book coming out, um, maybe in February, from Paraclete Press, called um, "To You All Hearts Are Open." It's a book on the biblical uh, model of prayer, of of intercession, of asking God, and um, it has. It, it shows that the the famous collect prayers in the church tradition, these are the prayers that everybody's heard, but they don't know what a collect is, is actually rooted in the biblical uh, framework for how to pray. And, um, and then I have some projects. I'm going to be, again, working on a book on Christian eschatology in the book of Revelation. And I have just agreed to a series of commentaries on the whole New Testament uh, for pastors and for lay people um, on the whole New Testament. So I've got my work cut out for me for the next five years. Good, good. 
Okay, well, we're about out of time. One last question. Um, Ethan asked, um, Dr. McKnight, in your opinion, what are the best seminaries in the United States today that prepare students for a life of ministry and further theological education? Um, by way of preface for my part, I want to acknowledge the seminary now is a multi-organization, multi-seminary uh, initiative, collaborative um, effort. On the other hand, I imagine, Scott, you'll speak uh, in parts on behalf of uh, for the programs that you lead as well. And so go ahead and if you want to answer that question. Well, I think it's a it's an unfair question. I was a professor at Northern Seminary and I love Northern Seminary. But there's there, you know, if you're a if you are going to be a Southern Baptist pastor, then you probably should go to a Southern Baptist seminary. Although our seminary has Baptist roots. If you're going to be a Presbyterian, you probably need to go to a Presbyterian seminary. There's a lot of good seminaries, and I don't think there is a best. Uh, the question is. Uh, what seminary will enhance your gifts for the things you think you're called to? Uh, seminaries don't create pastors. Seminaries enhance the giftedness of people who have the gift of pastoring and leading in churches. That's our focus. We work on people. We want to work with people who are headed for church and church ministries. So, and I, I love uh, Northern, and I like our programs. I, I direct with Nijay Gupta and Nijay is a better director than I am I, already. Uh, we have a Master of Arts in New Testament, and uh, we're starting a new cohort next Monday. And it's going to be a fun group, I can already tell. And then, um, and I also direct uh, with Nijay a D-Min cohort, and we have, uh, we have one that's going, one that's about to finish. We'll graduate in June of 2021. And um, another one that's starting this fall. So, um, I, I like I like what Northern Seminary does. I'm proud of my colleagues. I appreciate if friends of David Fitch will not say that too loudly, but uh, I admire his work and his commitment to the church. Our president, Bill Shield, is totally committed to leading a seminary that is focused on the church. And that's that's my focus, too. Good. All right. Well, we have run out of time, but I want to thank you very much, Scott, for, for participating in this. Um, to all of the, those who have joined us live for this interactive experience. Um, thank you again, Scott, for being the first uh, yes, teacher yes. the seminary seminary now live events. So thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed listening to the first ever Seminary Now live event. Make sure you get online and check out all the great content available today on Seminary Now. Just go to that website I've given you, seminarynow.com. Couldn't be easier to remember. And use a coupon code TAKE15 to save 15% for being one of our Kingdom Roots listeners. We're so grateful to have you today and look forward to be with you next time as we continue the conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.